0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Well, uh when I was in high school, um I was in a bad car wreck and uh, one day I was going out to pick up my sister, my younger sister from a relative's place out in the countryside and in Kentucky and I I approached this intersection that was known by everyone who lived in the area as Four Corners. It was a four-way intersection. Uh, And it was treacherous. It had a blinking red light facing all four directions. And when you pulled up to stop at the light at four corners, no matter which direction you looked, uh, there was a blind spot. No matter which part of the intersection you were at, there was a blind spot, multiple blind spots. And worst of all, uh, one of the roads leading into the intersection was a hill, right? So there was a car coming up over the back of the hill. And... Man, people would just fly up that hill into this blind intersection and as they came over that hill into this blind intersection, as soon as they hit it, they would oftentimes hit other cars. And that's what happened to me as I was making a turn, a car sped over that hill and just just right as I was turning, boom, it t-boned my car, t-boned my vehicle, I blacked out immediately. My car spun completely around, nearly 360 degrees. And shortly after the blackout, I opened my eyes. I woke up, opened my eyes. I looked, I raised up and looked out the driver's side window. And this man was coming at me. He was cussing at me and he was yelling at me. And I distinctly remember this guy coming right at me saying, I'm going to kill you. uh, As if the wreck was somehow my fault. But as he approached my car and got closer and closer, I just blacked out again. I think by choice, the second time, I just collapsed into my seat. Man, it was just a terrifying experience. Now, my childhood best friend lived about a 100 yards from the scene of the wreck uh, from Four Corners. And so for me to go to his place after this, after this wreck, it was a bit terrifying. Anytime I would take that same road back to his place, I would get nervous again. I could, could, when I was driving, I could feel my body changing, right? I would start sweating, kind of start shaking. I would get an extra tight grip on the steering wheel. It was an unnerving experience to drive out there again. Whenever I approached Four Corners after that, there was this just ominous feeling this sense that something bad may be looming on the horizon again it wasn't as though i was reliving uh the previous experience but it was the case that the previous previous experience caused something emotional to happen in me again and that emotion would start to trigger these physical responses from my body and We know that victims of trauma, they often report similar things. Victims of of abuse, victims of violence or near-death experiences and so on, they share similar kinds of experiences. Being in the presence of someone who had previously abused them can trigger certain emotions and then physical reactions. Or just hearing an abuser's voice, seeing a photo of them, or of a past bad experience, seeing a certain person's name on the phone when it pops up. These can be emotional triggers that lead our body to have these physical responses. It's been identified by some as a form of PTSD. The soldiers who've been in battle, they know it well, right? The sound of a loud motorcycle passing by can just cause this emotional trigger and then a bodily reaction, a backfiring muffler on a car, Uh, fireworks, these can trigger emotions, which, again, produce some sort of physical reaction. Maybe maybe you can connect with that on some level uh, with this aspect of life. Was, I mean, if you've ever been through something painful or if you've been through something difficult or scary in time, maybe you just learned to block it out of your mind. Like maybe you can't even go back there. You can't even access it anymore. You've forced your brain to stop functioning in a way so as to retrieve that past experience, that past information, that memory. I wonder if you can relate to that. It can it can happen uh, with other parts of our bodies too. It can happen with taste, just like it can happen with not being able to retrieve a past thought or memory. This can happen with taste. It can happen with hearing believe it or not. It can happen with sight. And I was reading this week about a group of women from Cambodia who understand this on a very profound level. Let me explain what I mean. They were diagnosed, about 150 of them. So it wasn't just a rare like one-off thing. It was 150 women. They were diagnosed with what's known as functional blindness, Um, Functional blindness has been documented among survivors of Vietnam War, uh, of World War II, of the Holocaust. But functional blindness is essentially this. It's a state of emotional trauma that causes visual impairment. Did you know that was possible? This group of 150 women from Cambodia, they all suffered from it. They had emotionally traumatic histories where they witnessed many awful things beatings and starvings and forced labor, uh, concentration camps, humiliations, murders, family separations, rapes, and so on. And it all happened under this dictator named Pol Pot in his Khmer Rouge. Um, They took over Cambodia and made these women and these others captives. And when they witnessed these horrible events, their minds just couldn't process. It affected them, not just emotionally, but then triggered something physically to happen. One of the most well-known stories uh, from this was of a woman who witnessed her husband and three children being taken away, and she never saw them again. She said she cried every day for four years, and once she stopped crying, she could no longer see. Another lady saw her husband and four kids killed in front of her, and soon after lost her vision. This is functional blindness. There's no organic or physical ailment causing the loss of sight, which is often temporary or fleeting, but what's causing the loss of sight is actually something emotional or something psychological. Again, it's like the body choosing to forget dark memories, but in this case, the body's choosing to forget how to see And when I read Genesis, especially Genesis 25 to 28, where the life of Isaac is kind of in view, I think there's really Genesis 25 to 26 where the life of Isaac is in view. I think there's something similar going on. Because if we're close readers of the scriptures, we can really tune into this. If we're not close readers of scriptures, then we stand to lose a lot. But here's the reality. Isaac's life was full of trauma. It was full of tragedy, a life history of trauma and tragedy. Of everyone we've met in Genesis so far, of every character, Isaac's life was probably the most traumatic. Indeed, Isaac's life was trauma after trauma after trauma. It was emotional scar after emotional scar. And just like emotional scars often manifest themselves in physical ways in our lives, I believe the same was true for Isaac. His emotional scars manifested themselves in physical ailments, particularly his sight. Now, let me just remind you some of what Isaac has been through, okay? When Isaac was a child, he grew up in a home with an abusive mom, Sarah. She abused Hagar, and he saw that. And she shunned Ishmael, and Isaac saw that abuse. If you've ever grown up in a home with any kind of abuse, especially physical abuse, you know that that never really leaves you. It affects you. It shapes you. That's the kind of... Isaac grew up in that kind of environment. He grew up in a home, too, where his dad, Abraham, even watched Sarah abuse Hagar and shun Ishmael. And Abraham, his dad, did nothing about it. And he watched his angry mom send his half-brother and Hagar away, and he probably expected that they would die. Isaac's mom, Sarah, had a mean streak in her, and his dad, Abraham, was impulsive. And that impulsivity actually almost cost Isaac his life, as you know. Whether it was a teenager or as an adult, Isaac accompanied Abraham up Mount Moriah, and there his father almost killed him. He was supposed to dedicate Isaac to the Lord, but instead nearly sacrificed him. An act of impulsivity and misinterpretation. And after that, as far as we know, Isaac never talked with Abraham's father again. The family was officially torn apart. And as scripture seems to suggest, while Isaac was up on this mountain with Abraham, his mother, Sarah, died. So he never got to talk with her again either. And so at one and the same time, As he was almost killed, he lost his mother to death, and he lost his relationship with his dad. He chose to end that. These experiences alone are enough to do a person in. And then Abraham acts again. He has his servant deceive Rebecca. She thinks she's going to be Abraham's servant's wife, but in an act of trickery, the servant ends up delivering her to Isaac. Something she resents and she's going to resent and something that will affect their entire marriage. Isaac's own home, when he grows up then, is one at least to a degree unhappy. He's got an unhappy marriage. And at his father's burial, he's confronted by Ishmael. And of all of Ishmael's brothers, they they come and they want their rightful inheritance, the portion from Abraham. And Isaac, they're arguing with him, but Isaac doesn't budge. It effectively ends the relationship with his long-lost brother, Ishmael. Isaac gets rich off of this and goes to Gerar with his wife, Rebecca in tow. And just like his father, he endangers her life by passing her off as his sister. And it causes this king and his soldiers to chase down and confront Isaac, forcing him to leave Gerar. He shouldn't have been there anyway, as we learned last week. He was there by way of disobedient acts, but in time, a famine strikes and Isaac loses it all. Essentially, he goes broke. The family is suffering. They're hungry. They're cash-strapped. He can't provide. His sons are constantly feuding with one another. And Rebekah is more like a friend, a college roommate than a wife. The house is chaotic and dysfunctional. And when his firstborn, Esau, finally leaves the house, what does Esau do? As we're about to read shortly, he marries a Hittite woman, something he shouldn't have done. It was an act of family dishonor, family shame. But to top it off, that's not enough. He marries another, a second Hittite wife. He has two Hittite foreign wives. And as we know from the rest of Genesis, anytime there's more than one wife, it spells trouble. It causes Rebecca so much grief that she says she wants to die. She's not a happy wife or a happy mother. Unhappy wife, unhappy life, I guess. As today's story starts, Isaac, he's about 100 years old. He dies when he's 180, so he's still got 80 years left in the tank. In short, this is the midpoint of his life, but you'll see in just a moment that he's already at 100, the halfway point, ready to die. He's waiting to die. He's expecting to die. And you see, we often overlook these sorts of things. We just read scripture and get the various bits of the story, and we really fail to link them together in such a way that we remember, hey, these were real people just like me and you, with real lives and real histories and real crap and real problems. And so I asked, are we, are we not supposed to think that all of these traumatic experiences that Isaac has in his history didn't affect him? That they didn't affect him deeply? No, 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 no. They did affect him. And just like we still see in our world today, many times our deeply emotional and traumatic experiences manifest themselves in physical ailments. But in this story, it's not just Isaac who has emotional trauma to work through. Rebecca has her own problems. When she's carrying Jacob and Esau in her womb, she asks the Lord, if it's like this, why me? In another way that we could put it, if it's like this, why am I even alive? And then at the end of today's verses, as we'll see, she's so incensed by Esau's marriages that she says, I'd rather be dead than endure this. She's had her history too, which as I said, starts with her being tricked and trafficked and traded. And this kind of emotional trauma will stick with you if you're her and shape you. And like her, maybe at the end of it, you just want to die. Or maybe in the middle of it, you just want to die. Then there's Esau. He also wants to die. So, Isaac's ready to die, Rebecca's ready to die, and Esau wants to die. He trades off his birthright, which is tantamount to trading his responsibility for the family. And later, he's tricked out of his blessing. And after a lifetime of warring with his brother, his brother gets him good a second time. And in the aftermath, Esau says, I would rather be dead than endure this. So you see this family, it's full of emotional baggage and emotional history. It's an emotional history of emotional trauma. Isaac is waiting to die. Rebecca wants to die. Esau wants to die. This family has death on its mind. A family, much less any team or business or organization, cannot survive by operating like this. When there's a culture of undermining and deceit and backbiting, a culture of revenge and trickery, that culture won't last long. It'll come unglued. It'll fall apart. And in the process, everyone may just feel like they'd rather be dead than deal with all the pain and hurt and fallout. And so therefore, to truly make sense of what we're about to read... From the end of Genesis 26 and all of Genesis 27, we got to keep this in mind. What's happened on an emotional level has affected everyone in the family, even physically. Deceit looms large. Death is on every, nearly everyone's mind. They'd all rather die than be around each other. <laughs> Ever been in a family situation where you feel like that? I mean, I'm telling you, don't look past these things. The power of the scripture to affect us and to change us and to affect change in our lives. It really resides in our ability and our willingness to see these difficult circumstances in the text and own up to them and then own them in our own lives. Put differently, if you want scripture to change your life when you read it, you have to be vulnerable. Vulnerable. So with that in mind, let's turn to the text. Genesis 26 is where we're going to pick up right at the end. The last couple of verses, it begins this way. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as a wife Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. They grieved, that is the wives, or or I'm sorry, Esau and his wives, they grieved, the spirits of Isaac and Rebecca. <laughs> so yeah, here, here's another one of those experiences of grief. One wondered why Esau married outside of the family. Was it despite his parents? Was it because he hadn't been told otherwise? That's a little hard to believe. We don't know exactly, but we know he did it. And that for his parents, it was a source of grief. Again, this is just another problem added to the emotional ledger. And watch what happens next to Isaac after this instance of grief. Look at this. This is incredible. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he couldn't see, he called Esau, his elder son, and said to him, My son. And he said to him, Here I am. This is a stunning verse. It seems like nothing at first. But remember, Isaac, he's at the midpoint of his life. Halfway through, and he encounters blindness. It seems to be maybe partial blindness, but in my view, it's probably this functional blindness. It's this functional blindness uh, that's triggered by, I think, emotional trauma. In fact, it could be the case that when difficult times come, right, this is a side effect that Isaac and other family members can expect stress has a way of affecting our bodies in very different but powerful ways but there's a very important detail that you don't want to miss here watch this when Isaac calls for Esau to come to him what's Esau's response it's here I am in Hebrew it's a word we've encountered many times before "Hinei." we've talked about this it's a word that means essentially here I am or at your service or I gotcha Right? It's a, it's the same word that Isaac, catch this, it's the same word that Isaac himself said when his father took him up on the mountain to kill him. He Hineni, here I am. And it's just another reason why this is significant because in this moment, a word comes to the fore. Just like a smell or a scent or a sound or a voice that can take you back, this word has the power to take Isaac right back to that negative experience on the mountain with his father Abraham. It's the same exact word and has the power to transport him backward in time to that negative and dark place. If you had a parent or a family member or a spouse or a bully who knew the right words to say, to cut you down, to cut you right to your heart, to send you spiraling into depression, just to undo you later in life, When somebody says that same exact thing, that word or phrase, bad memories can come flooding back. It's emotional trauma. And look at the very next words, uh, Isaac's very next thought. Check this out. He said, see now, I'm old. I don't know the day of my death. Here he is. He's expecting to die. He's still got half of his life left. And it feels like he's on the brink of death, Brink of death, that death's about to kiss his lips and draw the last breath from him. His son has grieved him. He's functionally blind. His near-death experience floods back. Death is knocking. So again, let me reiterate, don't overlook these seemingly small clues. They are of vast importance to piecing the whole story together. We continue reading says, now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and get me venison. Make me savory food such as I love and bring it to me, that I may eat and that my life may bless you before I die. So here again, Isaac mentions death. It's on his radar. And when you think you're going to die, it shades everything. It shades everything that you say, think, feel, and do. Now, I remember when i was a when i was a child i had this stepdad his name was kenny he wasn't around very long a few years he was a hard rocker uh he wore these leather jackets and he had long hair he was into drugs he was into drinking he was abusive um he was to put it bluntly just a nutcase and well one day kenny was furious and we were in the car Uh, I'm in the back seat with my little sister who's buckled in the car seat next to me. She's just a baby and it's raining hard and he's yelling at the top of his lungs at all of us. And he begins to scream, do you want to die? Do you want to die? I'm going to kill us. I'm going to kill us all. And he's doing this just as we're, we're trying to merge off the interstate ramp onto the interstate. And he purposefully, he starts veering really hard toward the guardrail as if he's, he's going to purposefully crash into it and end everything. I'm in the back. I'm crying. I'm yelling, stop, stop, right? I, I felt like I was going to die. I felt like I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. It was a scary moment. Uh, something like that, it shakes you for days and weeks and months, maybe even years after. I've never forgotten it. All these years later, in an instant, in an instant, I can I can go right back there, as if it was all replaying today. When you think you're going to die, when you're expecting to die, you start to think and act differently. And for some people, they become numb. Others become cold. Others take the post-traumatic stress and they turn it into post-traumatic growth. And Isaac here, he's expecting to die. He just wants to eat and go in peace. Once they have his last supper, perhaps, but that's not going to happen. At least not if Rebecca has anything to say about it. She'd never chosen to be with Isaac in the first place. She was duped. Now is her chance. She sees he's failing. Now is her chance to dupe him and get him back. God had told her, you remember, when she was carrying the babies, that the younger would rule the older in time. And so rather than let God bring things to fruition in his own way, she jumps in. She jumps the gun. She tries to take the reins. And like Abraham did so many times, she obstructs God. She gets in his way by trying to do things of her own accord. Look at what the text says. It says, Rebekah heard when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and bring it. And Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, you see saying, listen, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, bring me venison and make me savory food that I may eat and bless you before my death. Here, once again, we have the recollection recollection of Isaac's expectancy of death, which Rebecca reports. She's sharing this information about Esau with her favorite, Jacob, so as to set him up. Forget God's plan. Rebecca has got her own. And here's her advice to Jacob. He says, This now, therefore, my son, listen to my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and get me two good young goats from there. I'll make them savory food for your father, such as he loves. You shall bring it to your father that he may eat, so that he may bless you before his death. There it is again. And Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother is hairy, a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. What if my father touches me? I'll seem to him as a deceiver, and I would bring a curse On myself and not a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son, but listen to my voice and go get them for me. So Rebecca's plan of deception is in motion. She's going to try to force God's hand, and she's going to use Jacob as her pawn to do it. Her elaborate plan involves ordering Jacob to go grab some goats. Doesn't have much, he doesn't have to do much else. She'll cook it. He'll simply take it in and act as if he were Esau. And as you read, you get this feeling that Jacob might not be so sure about all this. He knows he's going to have to trick his father. He says, I'll seem to him as a deceiver. I'll be cursed. Mom says, no, 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 don't worry. I'll take your curse. Just listen. Just go. And honestly, at the end of all this, Rebecca, she's the one that's going to endure a sort of curse. She'll never see Jacob again in her life at the end of the story, after, after the end of the story. She's a sort of Eve. 2.0. Isaac is like an Adam 2.0. And this whole scene evokes the the scene from the garden. The woman is tempting the man here with food. And the end result is a curse. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Friends, what we're seeing here, it's an accumulation of generational hurt and pain and sabotage that at the end of the day adds up to a full-on family rupture. It's family dysfunction on display for all to see. We have here parental favoritism. One parent telling the child to say or do something behind the other parent's back and to not tell. We have keeping secrets. It's not telling truths in order to protect others in the family. It's preying on one family member's appetites and weaknesses to manipulate them and get what you want. Who Some of you can relate to that, right? It's sibling betrayal. Some of you can really relate to that. It's Esau who'd been his father's keeper, the one to take care of his aging father, being burned by his sibling who doesn't. Who? Some of you can really relate to that. This is our family, though. This is our story. Things haven't changed. Our family is still screwed up. And this is a reminder that when we step out of who God calls us to be and we settle for being someone less, it affects everyone within our reach, within our orbit, within our family. This is our family novel, and we've got to read it that way. You and me, we're in this story. We're in this story. We're characters in this story. This is our story. Let's continue. The text says, He went and got them and brought them to his mother. His mother made savory food such as his father loved, and Rebekah took the good clothes of Esau. You see that she took Esau's clothes, her elder son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. She put the skins of the young goats on his hands and on the smooth of his neck. And so look, he's got the uh, the, the she's got the plan underway. The food is cooking, and as it is, she dresses up Jacob. <laughs> Now, she's cooking for Jacob and dressing Jacob. It's as if he can't do anything himself. He's a grown man. She's like this helicopter mom, right? And notice what she dresses him in, goat skins, these furry garments to make Isaac think that Jacob is really Esau. Now, there's way more going on here than meets the eye. I'm going to give you a little bit of an analogy. When I was a child, I loved stumbling upon bird nests. Right, If I spotted them in the tree, I'd climb the tree and see if there were eggs or baby birds in the nest. And in time, I learned that you should never, ever touch the eggs or the baby birds, because if the mother smelled another scent on them, then she would stop roosting the eggs or not return to feed the babies. To the mother bird, it's as if the babies had been defiled, and she'd just abandon them, and then they'd die. And the same is actually true with goats. I don't know if you knew this or not. If a mother goat is approached by an orphan goat that is not hers because that baby wants to feed, she won't feed it. She won't let it feed. She'll shun it. Not her baby. And so to get by this, the mother goat actually has to be tricked. So in the farming world, I don't know if you knew this or not, but in the farming world, there's this common practice known as skin grafting. It's an ancient practice it existed even in Isaac's day. Here's what happens. In order to trick the mother goat into, orf, uh, into mothering this orphaned goat, you have to take a portion of skin from one of her own, preferably from one of the mother's own babies, and you put it on the orphaned goat, and you graft it. And once you do that, the mother will smell the scent of her own child, and she'll take the orphaned goat as its own. Now, what was Jacob's profession? He was a shepherd. He tended the goats. And what animal did Rebecca tell him to bring in for cooking here? A goat. And what has to happen before she can cook it? Well, they have to skin it. And so Rebecca's essentially taking this ancient uh, shepherd's practice and applying it to her son Jacob. And again, it reminds us of Eden, where Adam and Eve, just prior to expulsion, are clothed in animal skins. And it signifies the unhuman and beastly, the animal-like nature that they're devolving into. The same is true here. True humanity, true living doesn't involve deceiving other people. Rebecca and Jacob have descended to their animality, to animal-like behaviors, not human ones. And in this, they are becoming less human. That's what happens when we sin. We become less like God and simultaneously less like humans, like who we're supposed to be, less human and more animal-like. We become slaves to baser instincts. Let's keep reading. The text says this. She gave the savory food and bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob, he came to his father and said, my father. He said, here I am. There it is again. He named me. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau. So there's the trick. I'm Esau, your firstborn. He's lying there. I've done what you asked me to do. Please arise, sit and eat of my venison, that your life may bless me. And Isaac said to this son, to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? So Isaac knows something's up. He said, because Adonai, your God, gave me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. Isaac's on to him. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father. And Isaac felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother, Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. Bring it near to me and I'll eat of my son's venison that my life may bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate. He brought him wine and he drank. His father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. He came near and kissed him. He smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, sure enough, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that Adonai has blessed May God give you the dew of the sky, of the fatness of the land, and plenty of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. Let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. Blessed be everyone who blesses you. And so there you have it. This is the first blessing. There'll be another But as of now, Esau's blessing is essentially gone at the hands of a deceptive mother and brother, at the hands of failing senses and faculties. That actually brings us to our word of the week um, here it's synesthesia. It's a fun word, synesthesia. It's a confusion of the senses. it seems that in addition to his emotional emotional trauma stacking up, here Isaac has a confusion of the senses. When it comes to sight, sound, touch, and smell, his senses are all getting sort of thrown off. And the result of that is absolutely devastating. Now, Esau, he's actually going to receive a blessing. But as it stands, it's not the first blessing, which evidently counted for something great. So the craziest part of it all, perhaps, is that Jacob, who's later named Israel in Genesis, becomes the father of the Israelites. He does so. He becomes the father of the Israelites in an act of deception. An entire nation is born through an act of deception. God's chosen people at this time are born through an act of deception. Did you realize that? And I think part of the point is this, that God can take even our biggest screw-ups and make something beautiful and amazing out of them. I once heard it said that when when God calls us, he takes into account our stupidity. (laughs) I, I think it's true. It's certainly true here. Let's keep reading. Things intensify now. Look at this. As soon as Isaac, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had just gone out from before Isaac, his father. Esau's brother came in from his hunting. This is just after Jacob just took his blessing. He also made savory food and brought it to his father. Had no idea that it happened. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's venison, that your life may bless me. (laughs) Isaac's father said to him, who are you? He said, I'm your son. Your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled with great trembling and said, Who then is he who has taken venison and brought it to me before, right? And I've eaten from all of it before you came and have blessed him. And yes, he will be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a very great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me also, were even me, my father. He said, your brother came in with deceit and has taken away your blessing, Esau. He said, Esau responded, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Yakov, Jacob? For he supplanted me twice, these two times. He took away my birthright. See now, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, haven't you reserved a blessing for me, father? And Isaac answered Esau, look, I've made him your Lord, and all his brothers I've given to him for servants. I've sustained them with grain and new wine. What then will I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have one blessing, my father? Just just bless me. Just even me. Just bless me, my father. Mm. This, is, this is a heartbreaking story to read. It's just utter deception. In the family, family deception, a mother deceiving both sons, a wife deceiving her husband, a brother deceiving a brother. And before when Esau traded his birthright for Jacob's stew, remember his words, they were, what use is a birthright to me if I'm going to die anyway? Here, the feeling must have been flooding back. He must have felt again like he wanted to die. He's broken. He's heartbroken. He knows his father's expecting death. And in due course, he'll want his brother to die. He'll threaten to take his brother's life. He wants to kill his brother, whose name means heel, Yaakov, or heel grabber, Yaakov. He essentially makes a pun or a play on words. He nicknamed Yaakov the supplanter, the one who grabs and takes things away, which is um, a really, really interesting descriptor. But Isaac affirms that. He refers to Jacob as the the son who came with deceit. And maybe you're wondering, why couldn't Isaac just renege, right? After he realized that uh, Jacob was being deceitful, why not just take the blessing away from Jacob and give give it to Esau? Because that's not how it worked. That's like saying something under oath in court, and then in a later session trying to convince the judge and jury that what you said before wasn't in fact correct. It's perjury. Same thing. It was a serious thing to bless someone like this. Once a blessing was uttered, it was uttered. Once a curse was uttered, it was uttered. No turning back, no turning back. But here's what we really have to pick up on. At the start of the scene, Yaakov wants to be Esau. Did you realize that? He's dressing up like Esau. He's he's acting as if he's Esau. But here at the end of the scene, Esau wants to be like Jacob, like Yaakov. Or to put it differently, the two brothers want to be each other. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) You ever known siblings who struggled to find their identity and looked for so much of it in the other sibling or siblings? Eventually, many in such circumstances simply do whatever they can to go into the opposite extreme. I've seen this with my own sibling, who it seems has done everything in her power to be who I'm not. After all, she heard it so often growing up, why can't you just be more like your brother? Which I'm assuming got really old to her. And so it's not surprising what the outcome of that is today. And in this story, these two siblings wanted to be each other, but one also wants to kill the other. And there's this other layer to it all. Because if we look close, what these two really want is actually the same thing. What do they both want? They're both after one thing, the same thing. What is it? their father's blessing. And isn't that true for so many kids? They just want their father's blessing. Early on in life, where my father was absent and stepdads were sort of in and out of the picture, forward to be exact, I yearned for that. I would go to my best friend's house and see how his dad loved him. His dad was strict, but loved him. His dad blessed him, and I wanted that. I never got it, and I never will. Those days have passed. That ship has sailed. And so many kids today just want the same thing. They want a father who loves them. They want to be fathered. They need to be fathered. There's this old rock song uh, titled Father of Mine that I used to listen to as a teen. I I still love it. Some of the lyrics say this, Father of Mine, tell me where did you go? Yeah, you had the world inside your hand, but you didn't seem to know. Father of Mine, tell me what do you see? When you look back at your wasted life and you don't see me. Sometimes you would send me a birthday card with a $5 bill. I never understood you then, and I guess I never will. My daddy gave me a name, and then he walked away. In his book, uh, Fathered by God, John Eldridge, he describes this refrain that's always played in his head. He's a Christian author. In this refrain, it shaped him as a youth and on into his adulthood, This compelling voice in his head and his life always told him, John, you're alone in this world and you'd better watch it because there isn't any room for error, so get it right. That's what fatherlessness will do to people, what it'll do to a generation, what it'll do to a nation. That's what it'll do, right? That's what fatherlessness will do to people. It will create a society, as he says, of unfinished men, Jacob and Esau were unfinished men. I'm an unfinished man. But my hope is placed in this truth, that God wants to father me. I landed on that as a 17-year-old, and I've never let go. And like Jesus at his baptism, I still have a chance for a fatherly blessing, my heavenly father's blessing. And if you're longing for a parent's blessing that you never received, or that you never had the chance to receive, or maybe that you never gave, then find your rest in your resolution, in the fact that God wants to father you. God wants to father you. He gave you a name, a new name, and he's not walking away. God wants to father you. Let's keep reading. It says, Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered him, Look, your dwelling will be of the fatness of the land, and of the dew of the sky from above. So it's very similar to what he said to Yaakov, but it changes a little bit. He says, you'll live by your sword and you'll serve your brother. But when you break loose, you'll shake his yoke from off your neck. And look at the next line. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And then Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning my father are at hand then i will kill my brother yaakov jacob so the stress you see simply continues to mount this family is heading for a proverbial cliff here again we have talk of death it's one thing to mourn for a family member it's another thing to to plot to kill him the days of mourning are indeed at hand and the text continues the words of esau her elder son, were told to Rebekah, she sent and called Yaakov, Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Look, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. And then I'll send and get you from there. Why should I be, be sorry, why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? And so the reality of what happens here is tragic. The family fractures, it splits. Rebecca thinks Jacob will be gone for a few days and Jacob thinks that he'll be gone for a few days, but the truth is Rebecca never gets to see her son again. Jacob never gets to see his mom again. Death will take her before he can. The fear of his own death causes him to flee. And where does he go? To the land of deception, Padan Aram. That Aram, right, means deception in, in, in Haran. Jacob will go to Rebecca's relatives, the relatives of deceit, and will spend a decade and a half there learning the art of deception and being deceived. It's not good. And now this chapter ends with a word that takes us back to exactly how the whole scene started. Look at this. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm weary of my life. I want to die, basically, because of the daughters of Heth. Remember Esau's two wives. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, the daughters of the land, why should I even live? And so like Isaac, Rebecca feels she's on the verge of death. She wants to die. One of her sons wants the other son to die. Death has this family firmly in its grip. They're questioning why living is even worth it. Why they should even put any effort into what's going on. It's unsettling. If this family had like a family crest or a family motto, it would likely have been death and deception. (laughs) It's who they are. And it's again, it's as if they're headed up for a cliff or perhaps into an interstate guardrail. It's terrifying to watch the family self-destruct. And so we wonder, is there any hope? I mean, I think, I think there kind of is. Do you remember, God factors our stupidity into the equation when he calls us. God's grace is greater than our stupidity. and In fact, in the midst of our stupidity, if we can manage to simply stop, And yield our lives to God to submit to his will. He can take all those problems and use them to actually strengthen us. Did you know that? What doesn't kill us doesn't make us stronger. That's false. What doesn't kill us, God can use to make us stronger. That's the truth. The saying needs modified. It isn't what kills us does what doesn't kill us make us stronger. It's what doesn't kill us. God will use to transform us and make us stronger. And so I'll end with this. Uh, Earlier, I talked about finding bird nests. (laughs) I want to return to um, this issue of birds. And I I said I used to love finding these nests and finding these eggs in them. And sometimes when you discover a nest, right, you might be fortunate enough to, like, stumble upon a baby bird actually hatching. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's pretty cool. It's an incredible sight. The egg will kind of start shaking and moving, and then it will crack and it'll crack more, and a hole will occur, and out will eventually pop a bird's head. Now, sometimes when you see this, you'll notice the baby bird struggling. It'll appear that the baby bird, like even though the hole popped through, that the baby bird can't get out of the egg. It'll appear that it's stuck. And of course, our desire is to help the baby bird get out of the egg. But I learned later that you should never do that. Why? Because it weakens the bird. To inhibit the natural process of the bird's hatching actually damages the bird's strength in the long run. It can have long-term devastating effects. So here's the point. It's in the hatching, that, that struggle of hatching, that the bird gets its strength, you see. And it's that struggle at the beginning of life that once it endures it, it sets it up for living down the road. And the same is true for us. We can either let the struggles in life cripple us or be something that God as our source of strength uses to father us. And that's our bottom line, that God wants to transform your struggles into strengths. God wants to transform your struggles into strengths. Listen, true growth occurs outside your comfort zone and my comfort zone. True growth occurs outside the comfort zone and in the struggle. My hope is that you'll let him have those struggles. Give God your struggles and watch what he'll do with them. Amen? Amen. Well, if you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you let go and give your struggles to God. And at the same time, hang on. Watch what happens. Amen, brothers and sisters.